copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, towards the end of the chapter there. We're in the midst of a series looking at God's earthly dwelling place, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so far in our tour of the tabernacle, we've looked at the altar of sacrifice, that first piece of furniture you'd have walked past as you entered in the east gate of the tabernacle, which reminds us that God cancels all the record and debt of our sin. Then we looked at the basin for washing, that second piece of furniture that you'd pass, which reminds us that God cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then last week, we looked at the table of the bread of presence, that first piece of furniture inside the holy place, which reminds us that having canceled our sin, having cleansed us of all unrighteousness, God communes with us, that he invites us to his table to sit and eat with him. Well, today we're going to look at the golden lampstand. So I'm going to read in Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40, and then I'll jump over to Exodus 27 and read Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. So starting in Exodus 25, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there should be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And then jump over to Exodus 27, and read the last two verses of that chapter, verses 20 and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing upon the preaching and hearing of it. Lord, we ask this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Lord, we know that your word is pure, giving light to the eyes, so may it do so this morning. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, never has the benefit of power and electricity and light been more appreciated when in the middle of the night, during a storm, all of it's gone. No power, no electricity, no light. Because as the saying goes, you do not know what you got until it's gone. And so without power to turn on the lights, in the middle of a storm at night, you are surrounded and enveloped by darkness. So much so that it's difficult to see your own hand in front of your face. And in the midst of that enveloping darkness, a simple task like walking from one room to another feels like you've been dropped in a special forces military operation without any training. And then darkness, in that midst of that enveloping darkness, is disorienting. Think of how disoriented you are in the darkness because in the absence of light, you lack the proper amount of visual information 
for things like balance, which seems so much easier in the light, sense of direction, identifying obstacles, and so on and so forth. But darkness is not only disorienting. As every kid knows, it can also be a bit frightening as well. When we lack light, which helps us see what is actually in a room, sometimes our imagination takes over and it fills that room with all sorts of fictional characters that aren't really there. And that's not always a good thing for our anxiety and our worry. I grew up in a house that had a basement. So in Minnesota, we have these things called basements. They're below the main level of the house and there's no water that comes up from it. And this was not just any basement. This was a basement in which the light switch was at the bottom of the stairs instead of the top of the stairs. And it was a dark basement, very dark. So when I had to go down there to get something that I needed or had to do some chore or task, I did what any older sibling would do. I sent my younger brother down there to turn on the lights by manipulating or threatening him. And it worked. He's not afraid of the dark anymore. So I really helped him. I really helped him. Darkness can also put a damper in our mood. It can be discouraging, disheartening. So if you're out on Halloween collecting candy, you come up to the big house, you think they're going to have full-size candy bars this year. And all the lights are off on that house. What does it mean? It means they're curmudgeons and they're not handing out free candy. Go to the next house. It's discouraging for a kid. Or if you live in Alaska during the winter, you get only six hours of sunlight a day. I can't imagine that. Sunlight provides so many mental, physical benefits that you really don't know what you got until it's gone. And so the common thread that runs through all these scenarios is that we were primarily made to live in the light. We need light to function. Light provides life and abundance. So when the power goes out, what's the first thing you look for? You're looking for a light, a flashlight of some kind. When you find yourself staring into the abyss of a dark room, what's the first thing you reach for? The light switch, you wanna turn on the lights. Or when you're living in Alaska during the winter, what is your primary Google search? Other states that have lots of sunlight. That's what you're looking for. Or, to relate this to our text, when you're the nation of Israel traveling in the wilderness before Benjamin Franklin got electrocuted, what are you doing? You are valuing light because of how rare it is and how necessary it is. And what is your light in the wilderness? It is that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. Without that pillar of fire by night, you do not know where you're going. Or, when you're a priest serving in the tabernacle day after day after day, and you go into that holy place, the only thing that gives off light is that golden lampstand. And so you're appreciative of that light coming from that lampstand as you go about your meticulous labors. And it is that lamp and that light that it gives off that we are gonna look at this morning. And so as we do, here's what we're gonna see this morning. We were made to live in the light of God's presence. That's what you were made for. Because only in his light can you see all things clearly and only in the light of his presence can you experience true joy fully. You were made to live in the light of God's presence and in his light you see light and in his light you experience true joy. So as we begin, we're gonna first look at the features and designs of this tabernacle item. And you'll notice at the beginning of Exodus 25 verse 31 that this particular item in the tabernacle has one feature that distinguishes it from the rest of the items. It says this, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And if you jump down to verse 39, this design feature is reiterated with some additional detail. It shall be made with all of its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. So what's unique about this? The lampstand is the only item in the tabernacle that is made of one particular material. 
So it's not made out of wood and then overlaid with something else like gold. It is pure gold through and through, which is why sometimes this is called not just a lampstand, but the golden lampstand. And whoever was in charge of carrying this item when it came time to move the tabernacle got quite the workout because this is not your grandma's aerobics weight, okay? This is a very heavy item in the tabernacle. It was made out of a talent of pure gold. So a talent was a way to determine the value of some material like gold based on how much it weighed. So here in America, we we just kind of print money. That's how something has value. You print it in there, they weighed money. So you have scales and balances that tell you how much something is worth. So a talent was equivalent to about 75 to 80 pounds. So this is no dining room table candle. This is a weighty item, both in value and in heaviness. So its size is not specified for us like some of the other ones. But with that much gold, and it's a lot, this would not be something you could set in the middle of your dining room table. This is quite a massive item. Think of it more like a very ornate floor lamp that you put in your living room. It could have been between five and six feet tall, just standing upright. So this is, this is quite large. And if you look at verses 31 and 32 of a further description, this is what the lamp is to look like. So this is not just what it's made of, but here's what it looks like. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches on one side, three branches on the other side. So it has a base on which it rests so that it doesn't tip over. And then protruding up from that base is a main trunk. And then from that main trunk on each side are three different branches shooting off on each side, all kind of meeting at a level playing field on the top. And here's the coolest and most unique feature of this particular item. Worked into each branch, the center trunk and all the stems is the three stages of the blooming of an almond tree. So if you look at verse 34, it mentions almond blossoms in this. So closest to the base would have been the cup. So this is a little nub representing kind of the beginning of a flower in its earliest stage. Then in the middle is the calyxes or a bud. So think of you buy a rose or tulip from the store before it blooms and before the petals open. It's kind of, you know, cocooning there, waiting to open. And then finally, closest to the top is the flower. So when an almond tree blossoms in late January, early February, you have these beautiful white flowers that bloom to say, you know, it's time. Come and you know, take from the fruit of this tree. So all of the stages of the blooming of an almond tree are represented at all times on this golden lampstand. And then verse 37 notes that atop all seven branches sits seven lamps. So when you think lamp, don't think of like a bulb where you just turn on the lights and they light, but think of like a bowl, like maybe something over here like this, where you could pour oil into it and then light it so that it would constantly be giving forth light, like a candle. And so when you hear that description, verse 31 and 32, verse 34, of all of its design and detail, what object do you think that this lampstand was intended to resemble? I kind of gave you the answer. And so if you answered a tree, you get one gold star. Okay, not a real gold star. Not even a star. You just get one gold star. But if you answered even more specifically, I think this represents the tree of life from the Garden of Eden, you get 10 gold stars, okay? Because it is my view, and, and I'm not alone in this. I think my mom agrees with me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Other scholars agree with me that the lampstand was placed in the tabernacle to be a perpetual reminder of the tree of life that was in the original paradise of God. 
So when you read the opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, you note that there's two trees there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, both, as it were, representing the blessing of life with God and the curse of rebellion against God. So it's this tree that stood in the original paradise of God. It symbolized all the blessings that Adam and Eve would have received had they um, obeyed in their kind of probationary testing period. And it's the tree that ultimately Adam and Eve were cut off from, were exiled from when the, the cherubim with their flaming swords were set up in front of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. So a priest enters into the holy place through the uh, outer veil and he looks upon this luminous, radiant golden lampstand and he's perpetually reminded that what was lost through sin in Adam is being restored by God's grace for us as God's people. So we can come into God's presence in a unique way to see that there's light and life in his presence, thriving, abundant life. And think about this, they're in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness, they're, they're on a mountain, they're in a place that is not known for its ability to plant and grow thriving trees. You don't find farmers running out to the Arizona desert to plant their farms. But they're in this wilderness, and in this wilderness, when God's presence is near them, they have an ever-budding, ever-blossoming, ever-illuminated tree because it is near the presence of God. And in addition to that, the lampstand had a very practical function, not just a reminder, but a very practical function. It was a constant source of light for the priests as they went about doing their very meticulous work in the tabernacle. And, but even in this practical function, the priests were to understand that God's presence gives off light so we can see all things clearly. When we're near God's presence, there is light by which we see light. Because without this light, it would have been pitch black inside the tabernacle. I don't know if you have blackout curtains in your house, but, but we do. And just one blackout curtain can really darken a room. But overlaying the whole tabernacle is not just one layer, but four layers of different threads and uh, you know, animal skins covering over it. Which means that if, you had, if we had blackout curtains, four layers of blackout curtains in this room, it would be pitch black in here. No light is penetrating into that room. So for them, the only hope is that this lampstand would give off light. So jump over to Exodus 27, verse 20 and 21, which I read at the beginning. And note what they did with this lampstand. This was their job, their responsibility. You should command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light. So the reason I think it's this one is this doesn't give off smoke. It's very easy to burn. gives off very clean light. That a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. So the fire on the altar that we looked at, the altar of sacrifice, was to always be lit, constantly be lit. So the priests were constantly maintaining the coals and the fire. Now here's another job they have. The lampstand in the holy place has to be constantly lit, constantly provide oil for it. So herein is another frustratingly busy aspect of the priest's job in the Old Testament. They had to make sure they always had enough oil and kept these lamps burning morning till evening, no days off with this job. Now, with all these frustrations built into the tabernacle, there's really two ways to look at these frustrations. Either God didn't know what he was doing his first run around, or he intentionally designed them into the tabernacle for a purpose. I think it's the second one, and my mom agrees with me as well. 
there were frustrations by divine design that were meant to show that this earthly tabernacle only served as a copy and shadow of greater things to come, of heavenly things. Within the frustrations, it was meant to invoke a longing, a desire for something better that gives rest, gives relief, is a truer and ultimate fulfillment of this stuff. So what are some of the heavenly realities that the lampstand was designed to illuminate for us? Well, first, the lampstand illuminates the truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. So there's a perpetual provision of light coming from this lampstand, which represents that where the Lord is, there is light. For God is light, as 1 John 1, 5 reminds us. God's first words in the Bible, let there be light. Moses' first encounter with the presence of God was a burning bush, a bush that was burning and yet not consumed. The nation of Israel's first encounter with God is at night fleeing out of the bondage of Egypt, being led by a pillar of fire, the only light in the wilderness leading the way for them. So God presents himself as light, but he also uses the metaphor of light to describe himself. Psalm 104 tells us that God clothes himself with splendor and majesty, covering himself with light as with a garment. So it's the idea of of a king. And this king is so radiant and so full of majesty that pure light is the royal robe of the king of kings and lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.6 tells us that God alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. So the glory of God radiates forth in such infinite splendor and grandeur that if it were revealed to you in all of its fullness, it would be safer for you to stare at the sun without sunglasses or to play on the surface of a supernova. That's what it means that God dwells in unapproachable light. And then 1 John 1, 5 says very clearly, God is light and in him there is no darkness. He shines forth with absolute moral purity. The darkness of moral defect has nothing to do with God. There's not a spot of darkness around his presence. Where the Lord is, there is light. And this is simultaneously a great comfort and should be, in one sense, of great concern to us. It's a great comfort because in the midst of fear, we can be comforted that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? You light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. These are verses that you share with your kids when they're young and scared of the dark. That All of the darkness is even light to the Lord. We're in the midst of moral confusion and the suppression of truth. When the world is twisting and turning things upside down and inside out, we can be comforted that the word of the Lord is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That the commandment of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eyes. With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We're in the midst of discouragement or sorrow, we can be comforted with this blessing, which Mike already mentioned, the Lord bless you and keep you. And it goes on later to say, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That great light of God's shining favor upon us. We were made to live in the light of God's presence, to bask in the unfiltered joy of his shining face of goodness and grace. So this is one of the truths that would flicker forth in the golden lampstand for the people to see and understand. But here is where this truth that God is light becomes of great concern. The light that comforts and the light that guides is also the light that exposes and reveals all things. It makes all things plain. 
First time I ever encountered the worst creature on the planet. I walked into the bathroom, I flicked on the light, and then scurrying across the floor was the ugliest, nastiest creature known to man. You know what I'm talking about, the cockroach. It is the worst. Cockroaches love to live and feed in the darkness. It's where they grow, it's where they live, they love it. So the moment the lights went on, this cockroach went running because he was exposed and needed to find a new covering of darkness to live in and dwell in. Light reveals and exposes all things, including and especially things that don't want to be exposed and revealed. My eyes are on all their ways, says the Lord. They are not hidden from my face and their guilt is not concealed from my eyes. Jeremiah 16, 17. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into light. Job 12, 22. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And Jesus tells us why this aspect of God is light is of great concern to us in John 3, 19 to 20. And I'm paraphrasing here. The reason the exposing, revealing nature of the light of God's presence is concerning to us is because of sin, we naturally love the darkness and hide from the light lest our deeds be exposed, lest the motives and intents of our heart be exposed, lest the secret things come out. When Adam and Eve first sinned, their new instinctive response was to hide and cover themselves. What was previously to draw near to God would have been their instinctive response. It was to flee from him, to hide and cover themselves. And we have been creatively repeating that same sinful instinctive response ever since. Sneaking out, waiting till everyone is asleep, changing the facts of the story, going behind someone's back, putting on a good face, only indulging behind closed doors, clearing the history, answering, oh, just great, doing fine, doing wonderful are all creative ways of trying to hide and cover in the darkness what you do not want exposed and revealed in the light. Because like cockroaches, sin thrives on dark and damp places, and it will scurry away from the light, trying to find new covering wherever it can. And so as with cockroaches, the only solution is to turn on the lights and kill it. That is the only solution to sin. Because Proverbs 28:13 says, whoever conceals their sins will not prosper. Whoever conceals their sins will not prosper. And I can say this from experience and secondhand research. I have never met a single person who was trying to keep something hidden from the light, who at the end of it all said that was really enjoyable and I'd really like to do that again. I have not met anyone who has said that, including myself. But Proverbs 28:13 has a flip side to it. Whoever conceals their sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy, will find mercy. And yet even in Christ, even knowing the peace of God that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has justified us by faith, who has canceled our sin, cleansed us from all unrighteousness, we still struggle with walking in the light as he is in the light. If if they knew the real me, would they really respect me? If they understood what was really going on, could I bear the shame and embarrassment? How can I pray to the Lord after an outburst like that? Now, if that's you, you need to hear 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. That is a repetitive, perpetual promise held out to you by your heavenly Father over and over again. Is that a one and done deal? And you need to remember that God has placed you in a community to help shine the light of the gospel on you so that you're not living alone and in isolation. Listen to these very insightful words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called Life Together. This is a insightful quote, so helpful, and cuts you to the heart. He says this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart, and it begins to overthrow and heal and restore, especially through other believers in Christ. We are always in desperate need of the light of the gospel, which is why the good news you need to hear today is that God who is light and in whom there is no darkness sent to us the light of the world to shine into our darkness, to overcome the darkness. And that's what the lampstand helps us see, that Christ is the light of the world and he has overcome the darkness. The prophets would speak of a day when the light of God's presence would, as it were, break forth from inside that tabernacle, that place where it was concealed, and would shine into the darkness of the world and expel the darkness. For example, Isaiah 9:2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And what was foretold by the prophets becomes yes and amen in Christ. He is, as John says in the opening of his gospel, a light shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So every step along the way of Jesus' life and ministry, from his birth to his resurrection and ascension, you see the light of God's presence as it were breaking forth and expelling the darkness. So think of the announcement of his birth. You had angels watching their flocks by night, right? Remember Charlie Brown? He explains this all to you, what Christmas is all about. The shepherds are watching their flocks by night. And what happens? The glory of the Lord shines all around them. And an angelic host announces to them in this radiating light that a savior is born to you this day, King David, the greater, the greater son of King David. And then the Gentile magi who want to bring gifts to the king, what are they led by? They're led by a light shining in the darkness that leads them to this newborn king. Simeon at the temple, when they bring Jesus to present him at the temple, Simeon holds that baby Jesus and he says, you have shown your light on the nations. Well, Jesus in his earthly ministry was celebrating with the nation of Israel the Feast of Tabernacles. And in this feast, what they would do at the very end of the feast, it was a week-long feast, the last day of the feast, there is this candle lighting ceremony. So they have these massive, large replica lampstands, and these priests would carry 10-gallon buckets of oil and climb up these ladders and pour them into the bowls, and they would light it. And it was to signify and commemorate that the light of God's presence led us out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And then on that day, in that ceremony, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus saying, very particularly and clearly during this ceremony, just as that pillar of fire led you out of bondage in Egypt, I am the one who will lead you out of the bondage and darkness of sin. The greater light has come to bring a even greater deliverance than the exodus. 
And he's saying that he is the true light and life that was represented by the prophets. He was the, he's the lampstand taking on flesh and dwelling among the people. We were made to live in the light of God's presence. But apart from Christ, we're like the blind leading the blind, right? We are stumbling around in the darkness, grasping after reality, but holding on to all the wrong things. So Christ comes that by his light and his light alone, we might see light and be led back into the light-giving, life-giving presence of the Father. But what had to happen in order for us to be restored into the light of God's presence? Well, in order for us to return to the light of God's presence, to bask in the shining face of God's favor and goodness, Jesus had to experience the Father turning his face away from his beloved Son. The Son had to be on the cross as darkness envelops him, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the shining face of God as it were turned away from the Son, and he does not see that anymore. And as he was on the cross crying out that statement of curse, every single gospel notes that darkness covered the whole land. That Christ on the cross during the middle of the day is shrouded and enveloped in darkness. Why? Because for us to be able to enter into the life-giving light of God's presence, Jesus had to be enveloped in the darkness of God's judgment and wrath for us so that we could be brought in. And then Jesus dies and he's buried and the light that shone in the darkness, the disciples now think, well, the darkness has overcome it. They're in the darkness of despair. They're, they're hiding in darkness. And yet what does that great hymn in Christ alone say? There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave, he rose again. Sunday, in the dawning of the day, a dawning of a new day, the sun shines forth, and the resurrection is the revelation of a true and greater lamp that shines forth with true light and true life, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we get to look forward to as believers in Christ? John tells us in Revelation 21, 23. He records this about the new city that awaits us. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The true heavenly tabernacle that we get to look forward to, that we get to await, is not filled with artificial light or even light made by oil. It is filled with the, the radiating light of the glory of God and the Lamb. And as Christians, we await the day when all shadows will flee away, when darkness and death and sin and sorrow are no more, and the shining face of God's grace becomes not just the benediction that we struggle to grasp every week when it's given to us, but it becomes the eternal reality that we get to bask in and swim in and be surrounded by for all eternity. And so in the meantime, what is your calling? Well, your calling is to be the light of the world. What does Jesus tell his disciples? You are the light of the world. Your calling is to declare the gospel of the one who is the light of the world so that the darkness of this world might have light of truth shining into it. And you're to live as those who do good works, that you adorn the gospel with good works so that others may see them and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and yet we're to shine as lights in this world. That is your calling. Let's pray.